You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Have you ever set out to do something and experienced hills and valleys along the way? Have you ever gotten to a place where even after some victories you still couldn't see the finish line? Well, here's the reality. As believers, we find ourselves in that place and are constantly living in the tension of the already but not yet. We have seen and tasted victory because of the empty tomb, but are still burdened by the ravages of sin and suffering. However, even in the darkness, there is truly an anticipation of future joy. Through the weeds of the garden, we see the beautiful flowers of God's desire to dwell with man. We see the revelation of his new garden where the former things have passed away, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. This is the completion of redemption. Aren't you grateful for creative people? (laughs) You know, I I see that and I can recognize creative, but I, I couldn't come up with that on my own. What a glorious reminder the last four services have been, even as you see the progression in this image of four gardens and what those represent and teach us about redemption. If you've been coming to Ascend throughout this series, you've seen we've been trying to show that the Bible, this book that we preach from every week, the book that we are privileged to study every day, is a story. It's the greatest story ever told. It is a true story that involves the character of God, the condition of man, and God's plan for all history, the story in which we find ourselves. And you know, so often with stories, we can focus in on one character. We can focus in on one event. And while that's great and it teaches us something, it doesn't tell us the whole story. And so as we've been walking through these different gardens, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Empty Tomb, and this Sunday, the Garden of the New Jerusalem, I hope that it is woven together in most vivid, most colorful, most clear and compelling understanding of the redemption that is offered through Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads as I pray? Father, thank you for the story of redemption. I thank you for what it tells us about you, what it tells us about us, and how it informs us that from beginning to end, you are in control. That from beginning to end, your purposes are sure. Your promises are true. From beginning to end, the epicenter is Jesus Christ, and in him, we find our hope and help for all of life's circumstances. Would you use now, I pray, our study of the New Jerusalem to not only educate us, but to equip and energize us with great hope for what lies before us for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray and to his glory, amen. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation 21. If you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you, and in those Bibles, you can find Revelation 21 on page 1041. Now, for those of you who have been coming to Ascend for a while, this may seem a little odd, it may seem a little strange, because 
As a church, we've been working through the Bible, verse by verse, through the book of Revelation. A few weeks ago, we stopped at Revelation 9, and here we are arriving at Revelation 21. Well, there's a lot between Revelation 9 and 21, so what I want you to know is we're going to be skiing over gold mines. What I mean by that is we will not be plumbing the depths of the riches of the treasures of not only every verse, but every phrase and every word that is reserved for the months ahead when we finally get there. Well, the point in walking through this is that I believe it provides a fourth garden scene that will allow us to understand the completion of redemption that God has designed. And if we were to stand, as it were, at the arbor gate of this garden, an arbor gate that provides an image of anticipation, being at the gateway or the doorpost of this garden, we we are left with a question. What does the creator have in store for his creation? Now, I don't have the opportunity to be able to share in great detail the Sermon of the Garden of Gethsemane, the Sermon of the Garden of Eden, the Sermon of the Garden of the Empty Tomb. I'll I'll reference back there, but I want to provide maybe an adaptation of a story that will help us all be on the same page. Suppose, if you will, that you are a parent who has chosen to adopt, and not just adopt one child, but adopt many, many children. And the target of your adoption is children who are born into life-challenging contexts. Not only economically, but also from a health perspective. They, They most likely will not live into their elementary years because of the wickedness and the lack of resources that are contained in their life context. And so you decide that you're going to select these children to be adopted into your family, and your love for them is expressed in the fact that you are providing for them land. You are providing for each one of them homes. You are providing for each one of them the resources that they need to live a thriving life. But as they grow, they rebel. As they grow, their hatred of you continues to grow. As they grow, they make decisions in life that go against your instruction. And you know that this will lead to some of them being imprisoned, some of them going to jail, some of them even dying. Yet they don't care. You put restrictions about them, and yet they might not display this publicly, but they decide to do it secretly and behind your back. You consider that maybe the fact might be that they are not listening to you because you're their parents, and so you send them people that they should respect, people like trainers, teachers, coaches, respected individuals from the community, and and they all share the same instruction that you've been sharing for years, and yet your children double down in their hatred for you. They post on social media how much they despise you. And in fact, when they get to the age where they can, they will legally change their name so that any association with you is removed completely. They do what they want to do because it is right in their own eyes. How would you, as a parent, respond? 
Well, this illustration is an adaptation of 2 Kings 17. It is the story that recurs over and over again with the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. But it is more than that. It is actually an adaptation of the story of human history. Every human from the Garden of Eden to now and every subsequent human that is ever born will live this out. God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness and to thrive no matter what our circumstances are. And yet we choose to rebel by doing what we want to do in our own eyes. So as history has unfolded, as patterns, as I've described, have returned and occurred, what do you think the Creator will do as we stand at the arbor gate of the Garden of the New Jerusalem? Well, the Apostle John provides vivid imagery, and what's fascinating about this imagery is he actually ties the Garden of the New Jerusalem with the Garden of Eden. Look at the big idea in your notes. The New Jerusalem brings the theme of redemption to a close, providing hope and instruction that guide our feet and light our way. Does that sound like a passage of Scripture? Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, and the New Jerusalem is going to frame that for us. Look, first of all, at the completion of redemption that shows us the ultimate dwelling. The ultimate dwelling. There's garden imagery that we have to work a little hard to see, but it begins in verse 1 of Revelation 21. The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Do you see it in the text? A new heaven and a new earth implies that creation has taken place. In fact, the verse goes on to say, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I know some of you might be asking, well, pastor, do you believe that the earth is going to be burned up and God is going to create a new one? Do you believe that he'll restore the old one to its original status? And you'll have to wait a few months to hear my answer for that. But suffice it to say, there is a creative work that will take place for the new Jerusalem to occur. Suffice it to say, the old will be gone, the new will become, but this isn't the imagery that I want to draw your attention to. Because the bride that comes out of the heavens, that is described as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, has garden imagery in verse 3. Would you look at it with me? It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place. Do you see that phrase? Friend, if it isn't underlined or highlighted already, would you do that in your Bibles? Because this phrase brings a theme to completion that began in the Garden of Eden. God has always intended to dwell with his people He was always intended for intimacy of relationship. And two weeks ago, we saw that in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.8 says that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And we discussed how the, the way that the author writes that implies that this was an activity that the Lord God did on a daily basis. 
We also understood that the phrase walked does not just describe a physical action. It actually describes relationship. The Lord God had an intimate relationship with Adam and Eve that involved dwelling. Now you take that word in Genesis 3.8, you'll find it again in Leviticus 26.11 and 12 in describing the tabernacle. And as we arrive at that passage, the next place that God would dwell with his people, we begin to recognize that walking and dwelling go hand in hand because they describe an intimate relationship. There's something about presence, isn't there? Consider, if you will, your elementary days, if you can remember back that far. Remember how the class acted when there was no presence of a teacher. Everyone sat, quiet, hands folded. No, that's when you tested your airplane engineering. That's when you threw spit wads. That's when you gave wind to chaos. But then when the teacher's presence came back in the room, that affected life, didn't it? Same thing is true with your coach with your parents, or even in the adulthood season, your employer. The fact is, presence impacts us to the degree that the character of the presence is high, to the degree that the relationship is healthy, your response to presence is positive. To the degree that those things are not in place, your response to presence is negative. But what the New Jerusalem tells us is that it's going to be perfect, See, throughout time, God has dwelled with humanity. God has dwelt with his people. And yet, there are limitations to that, aren't there? And that's what John is unpacking. When you look at verse 4, after he has described dwelling, look at the impact of the presence of God dwelling with his people in the New Jerusalem. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Amen. I don't know about you, but I, I long for that day. Every day that we wake up and we have breath and we find through our eyes that we live this side of eternity means that God has something for us. It means that we have opportunity to bring glory to him. It means that we have opportunity to make disciples. But I'll tell you what, the day that I close my eyes here on this earth and open them in the new Jerusalem will be a glorious day that I can't even fully comprehend. And we get a little window into that, but the dwelling of God with man that is unbridled, that is without limits, will impact creation and humanity in a way that has never been seen before. In fact, look at verse 5. It says, Behold, I am making all things new. What happens when you get something new this side of the New Jerusalem? That new phone. Boy, doesn't it shine doesn't the battery last all day until the iPhone gods, if you will, conspire against us? And isn't it interesting that at the two-year mark, the battery begins to decline rapidly? How about when you get a new home? What happens the 
years three, four, and five, all of a sudden you realize that that paint that looked so wonderful when you moved in has to be painted again, and the thousands of dollars that you outlay will be needing to be paid again five years later. I'm not bitter. (laughs) You get a new car, and it smells like a new car. What happens after a year of being in that car? It no longer smells like a new car. The point is, is that this side of the new Jerusalem, things that are even new do not stay new, but the text says the creator God in the new Jerusalem makes everything perpetually new. What a glorious reality of the new Jerusalem, an ultimate dwelling that we have to look forward to. Number two, the completion of redemption shows us the ultimate temple the ultimate temple. The the temple was the location where God actually dwelt. And, And we see the beginnings of this relationship with humanity in the Garden of Eden, but we also see it with Noah. One of the first things that he did when he came out of the ark after the flood is built a what? An altar. Abraham built altars. Isaac built altars, Jacob built altars, the Jews built altars. Why? Because they wanted to worship God. But God uniquely provided an opportunity for his people to worship when he instructed the Jews to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent where God actually dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant. It was in a room called the Holy of Holies where only one priest, one day out of the year, could enter and experience a unique and unparalleled dwelling experience with the God of the universe. That continued to the physical building of the temple in Jerusalem, and it continues to this day right here in this room. Because the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the living God and that his spirit, what? Dwells in you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. But there's an interesting phrase that would have been absurd to the original audience. It would have been absurd to every previous generation of humanity. Look at verse 22. It says, John saw no what? What is the text? There's no temple. And you can almost hear the collective gasp of the original audience. No temple, no place where God dwells. And yet the rest of the verse explains why. It's because in this city... Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's garden imagery that even extends beyond this temple statement. Verse 20 describes jewels and gold. And if you think back to Genesis 2.12, that's what the author describes in the garden, doesn't he? Jewels and gold. In fact, some of the jewels described here in this vision are the same jewels that we saw in the Garden of Eden. Now, as we've unpacked the Bible, we see as the light of illumination increases, we understand that the authors of Scripture use these images to actually describe God, to actually describe something spiritual rather than physical. And so John is doing the same thing, but I think he's drawing back to that Garden of Eden imagery for a purpose, and it continues in verse 10. Look at verse 10 of Revelation 21. It says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high what? 
mountain. You can underline that because that's drawing our attention back to the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel 28, 14 describes the Garden of Eden as God's holy mountain. That mountain imagery continues all throughout the Bible. And every physical mountain has a way of pointing us to a spiritual mountain that is ultimately pointing us to the mountain that is described as the New Jerusalem. You can write down Hebrews 12, 22. After that great chapter on faith, after that great statement of the author of Hebrews who said that Abraham was looking forward to a city, in chapter 12, verse 22, it says that city is Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem. And what we see is, in these physical descriptions, is appointing the reader to the ultimate completion, the ultimate spiritual reality, which is the new Jerusalem having garden imagery. Do any of you have a special place in your life where you've experienced God in a unique way? Maybe it's on a, a mountaintop or at a retreat center. Maybe it's on a beach of an ocean. For me, it's a, a small pad of grass on Camelback Road in Phoenix, Arizona. It was just outside of Harvest Bible Chapel, North Phoenix, and I remember that place specifically because I, I found myself on the ground, head buried in my hands at the end of myself. You ever had an experience like that? You ever had an experience where, like Job, you say, I, I've heard of you with my ears, but what I see with my eyes doesn't compute? You ever had a moment in your life where all of the strategies, all of the spreadsheets, all of the contingency plans have all been exhausted? That's where I found myself on that grass pad in Camel, on Camelback Road in Phoenix, Arizona. I was at the end of myself. I was questioning calling. I was questioning being able to provide for my family. I, I came to the conclusion that God didn't want me to be a pastor because things weren't just aligning. I felt so inadequate and I just buried myself in my hands and I called out to my God and he responded palatably. He did so by reminding me of so many scripture references. He did so by reminding me of his character. He did so by reminding me of the years of my life where he had showed up at the very last hour before the buzzer sounded. And in that moment, I experienced the presence of God like I haven't many times since. And so anytime I go back to that pad of grass on Camelback Road in Phoenix, there is a sense of the presence of God that is unparalleled, but I don't have that everywhere where I go. See, God intended us to experience that and so much more everywhere we go. In fact, you can write down these verses. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Have you noticed I'm asking you to participate? One of the things we like to do here at Ascend is remind one another that the study of the word is not reserved for a select few. The study of God's word is not reserved for only those who have had advanced education. In fact, this last week, the staff and I had a wonderful opportunity to listen to ladies teach that have been trained in a ministry called Simeon Trust. Sally, my wife, has been leading that. And these ladies have been taught how to study God's word, how to teach God's word, and they did amazing. Imagine how nerve-wracking that would be 
to, for the first time in your life, teach in front of staff, and then to be critiqued. But the point in sharing that is that we are a ministry that recognizes that the study of the Word of God is intended to be for all believers, and we want to equip you to be able to do that. And for those of you who have skills or gifts to be able to then teach the Word of God, we have resources for that. Why? Because this is the truth. This is the vehicle that God has designed to spread his glory across the earth. In Genesis 1, 26 and 28, it says, be fruitful and multiply. And if you're looking at the text, it says this, fill the earth. Fill the earth with his glory. Fill the earth with his teaching. Be prophets, be priests, be kings on behalf of God so that every corner of the globe has God's presence equally and perfectly. Adam and Eve failed. But that didn't keep God from fulfilling and continuing to promise that one day it will happen. Write down Habakkuk 2.14. Your glory will fill the earth. Zechariah 9.10. The king that will enter Jerusalem on a donkey will reign one day in a kingdom that extends from east to west from sea to sea. And that's, I believe, what John is doing when he provides these descriptions that are difficult for us to understand. Verse 16 says, he measured the city and it was equal length, height, width, and depth. That's a cube. If you do the conversion on the ancient measurements that he provides in verse 16, this is a cube city that measures about 1,500 miles on every side. I had a friend that used to attend our church that he loved Revelation. He was obsessed with Revelation. And one of our copies, he brought in this sketch that he had put, on the, put down, and it was this cube. And I said, okay, that, that's an amazing cube. What is it? What is it? And he said, that's, that's the New Jerusalem. That's heaven. And if we're looking at this and only looking at the description and not considering prophetic genre and not considering how John has been using descriptions in all of Revelation, we might draw that same conclusion. But I don't think that's what John's communicating. And what's beautiful about this is that we need help to understand. So there's a quote that's going to be up on the screen that I found from James Hamilton in his commentary, who got it from G.K. Beale, who got it from research in ancient documents. And that is a 1,500-mile cube city was the approximate size of the then Hellenistic world. So, so, so what John is doing is going into the original context with the original audience and saying, you know that dwelling that you're longing for to be with God? You know that temple reality that only the high priest one day out of the year could experience? It's actually going to occur throughout the entire universe. It's not going to be a city in the Middle East. It's going to be every inch of the globe, every inch of the universe, God's presence and his temple will be. I get excited about that. The description of the majesty of the city, once again, just simply describes the majesty of our God. It's not requiring that there's 12 literal gates of pearls made out of one single pearl. In fact, the studies that I've been able to do over the last week have revealed that it's impossible this side of eternity to actually have 100% pure gold. 
Even the purest gold is only 99.9%. But this says that in the new Jerusalem, there will be pure gold. It's describing God's presence that we will experience. It reveals that the new Jerusalem is the eternal state, and it will replace the walking of Genesis 3.8. It will replace the dwelling of the tabernacle, the dwelling of the temple, the dwelling in this room, and all of the limitations that are associated with that. It will expand to every corner of the new Jerusalem, which is the entire earth. But then there's a little nugget here that I'll throw out to you. Look at verse 12. It says that there are 12 gates in this city. Again, this is the whole universe. He's using gates to describe a reality, a spiritual reality, rather than a physical structure. Verse 12 says that there's individuals at each one of these gates. Do you see it in the text? Who are they? They're angels. Do you remember a time in the Bible where an angel stood at a gate to keep people out? Genesis 3.24. But now these angels are inviting people in. In fact, it says in chapter 21 that the gates are flung open. They never close. And who are the ones that are invited in? We'll look back at verse 7. The one who conquers. Friend, we've been talking about this throughout the entire book of Revelation. This is one of the primary goals of John writing the book of Revelation. One of the primary goals of God giving him the details that he does in this amazing book. And that is so that we can conquer. But it's not us conquering because we're skilled. It's not us conquering because we've been trained in warfare. It's us conquering because we rely and we trust in the one, capital O, who conquered, Jesus Christ. So, friend, my question to you is, have you trusted in the completed work of the conqueror, Jesus Christ, for your salvation? It says in interesting descriptions that the, there were 12 gates that had on them the 12 sons of Israel. There are 12 pillars of the city that are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And I think what he's saying here is he's saying everybody from the beginning of time to the end of time who places their faith in the conqueror Jesus Christ are welcome in the city. There's no limits of ethnicity. There's no limits of denomination. There's no limits of citizenship. The, the, the only invitation requirement is that you have completed your faith and put your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate temple. Which brings us to number three. The completion, the ultimate resource. Don't worry, I'll, I'll finish on time. Maybe up to this point you haven't seen the garden imagery. Well, I want to draw your attention to what I hope will clearly show you the garden imagery. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22. He showed me the river of the water of life. Two weeks ago when we studied Genesis 2, we saw that flowing through the Garden of Eden was the river that provided life, and then it split into four tributaries that provided life for the surrounding region. But not only is there a river of the water of life that is described here, but then undeniably so in verse 2, it says that on either side of the river was the tree of life. You see it in the text. Whenever we've seen a river and the tree of life put together, that's garden imagery. What a reminder that this place will be a place 
with ultimate and lasting provision. It says the throne is in the middle of this city. The Lord God, verse 5, will be their light. What garden imagery that provides. But if we look at verse 1, I think the Apostle John is continuing how Jesus used this river of life analogy. You can write down these verses, Psalm 46, verse 4. Zechariah 14, verse 8, John 4, 10 through 14, and John 7, 37 through 39. The authors of Scripture, including Jesus himself, used a physical description to point to a spiritual truth. That's often what prophets did. They referred to water. Anybody in the ancient audience would have understood water is the difference between life and death. If your water source in the ancient world had poison, death would occur. If your water source was was living and it was pure, life would occur. So I think the ancient audience, whether in Revelation or when Jesus was teaching, or the authors of scriptures would use physical water as a spiritual teaching point, they would have understood that what it is teaching is that God provides what we need for abundant eternal life. That's what is going on here in Revelation 22. John is using this imagery to describe that when we are in the New Jerusalem, we will have everything that we need for abundant, eternal life. Praise God. And you can see on the quote that this actually ties into the passage in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel describes that fresh water will flow into the great salt lake. And that when it does, the salt water will be turned to fresh so that fish can actually swim. And I can tell you, I've I've actually been in the Dead Sea, and there are no fish. But what this is, is not a literal description of a future event where enough fresh water will flow into the Dead Sea so that fish can swim. What it's describing is, remember the ancient context, remember how prophets used physical descriptions to explain spiritual truths. What this is describing is that the New Jerusalem will, because of the presence of God, provide for us everything that we need for abundant eternal life. That's pretty cool. But then there's another physical description pointing to a spiritual truth. It says in verse 2, on either side of the river, there's a tree of life. Now, I don't think John is describing a literal tree that will be in the New Jerusalem. I think the reason I can explain that is because as the Scripture has unfolded, the literal tree of the Garden of Eden is used symbolically. We studied that a couple weeks ago in Proverbs, in Psalms. And in fact, look at even the description here. It does not act as physical trees do. This tree provides 12 kinds of fruit. I don't care what great engineer and scientist is out there. Nobody's ever been able to produce a tree that will make 12 different types of fruit. That every month there's a new batch. I don't think John is describing a a physical tree that we will get to experience in the future. I think what he's describing is symbolically, once again, in the presence of God, we have everything that we need for abundant eternal life. But it's even more than the description of water. It's more than a description of a tree. It's more than the streets of gold and mansions with rooms prepared for us. 
the ultimate resource is actually in verse 4. Which, by the way, you ever notice that in your life, everything good at some level is tainted? I mean, think about the best job that you've ever had. Think about the best place that you've ever lived, the best vacation, the best possession. There's limitations. My favorite possession, the one that I'm most joyful about, is my family. I love my family more than anything else in this world. But you know what? There's limitations. We get on each other's nerves, mostly me getting on their nerves. Which, by the way, when you're the only guy that lives in a house of females, that's my right and responsibility. (laughs) We get tired. We're expensive and we cost each other. Daughters grow up. I'm looking at my Meg here. She's getting ready to graduate. And I got to tell you that she hasn't seen this much, but I have been bawling. Because you don't get to spend forever with them. Everything good in this life has its limitations, but not here. Not in the New Jerusalem. Because verse 4 tells us the ultimate vivid resource that this garden provides. We will see his face. Do you see it in the text? You may say, well, that can't be because Ezekiel 33 says that God did not let Moses see his face. John 1, 18 says that nobody can see the face of God and live. And I I believe those are true statements because they're in the word, but they're written this side of eternity. I think what John is doing is taking all of those illustrations, all of those teaching, all of those illustrations, and he's saying the new Jerusalem will have access to God no one has ever known. We will see literally the face of God, however that works. It says God is a spirit. I don't know how we're going to be able to see the face of the spirit, but somehow we're going to have that intimate relationship that no one else has ever had because we will be in the new garden and because of the completion of redemption. What an amazing place. What an amazing resource. But there are more verses, and that brings us to number four, the completion, the ultimate task. The ultimate task. You ever come to an end of a movie that just moved you? I mean, the way I I tell is that when you go to a movie and the entire crowd just claps at the end, that's usually a movie that was significant. You ever been to a play where just everybody, including the ensemble, just delivered such a performance that you just, you rise to your feet at the end of it, and you just, you cheer. And as that applause dies, as the credits fade, aren't you left with that tension of ecstasy versus now what? And we've had an entire Bible, 66 books that have moved us to this point in chapter 21 and 22 have not disappointed they've gone back to the garden of eden they brought themes all weaving through scripture to completion we we long with anticipation the glorious day when we experience these ultimate realities but you look next to you and we're still here you look in the mirror and you're still bald 
You look in the mirror and you realize, I'm working hard on this gut, but it's... The fact is, we're still here. So what does this garden teach us about the completion of redemption and the task that we are left with? Look at verse 9. The last two words are our ultimate task. Worship God. That's it. The credits have faded. The applause is gone. We're leaving the auditorium. We've seen what is in store for us. We've seen what should motivate us to get up in the morning. We've seen what should cause us to endure the trials and the mess that is our society, the mess that is our own human hearts. We've been given everything that we need. The last task to do ongoing is worship God. You may say, well, I I don't always feel like worshiping God. Neither do I. You may say, well, there's times when I have doubts about God. I have questions too. So, so, so how do we execute and fulfill this ultimate task? Well, the text actually tells us. Go back to verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Wouldn't you love something in life that was absolutely trustworthy or true? I used to think it was math, and then I was introduced to Common Core. And I'm looking at this stuff, and I'm saying, wait a minute. The answer isn't important. It's the path that you took to get there. What? There's different answers to a math question, and I've got family here today that are way more advanced in mathematics, and they'll probably tell me at lunch why this is the case, but there should only be one answer to to a formula or to a problem. But as we go in life, we realize that the experts aren't always true. Studies correct studies that correct studies. And the fact is that very few things in our lifetime will be proven trustworthy and true except for this book. This book is trustworthy and true. Do you believe that? Then my question to you is, are you studying it? Are you meditating on it? When you come across questions, are you looking at commentaries? Are you asking leaders in your small group and in your, in your elder team? Is this book your delight? Is this book your greatest treasure this side of eternity? Verse 6 tells us that the prophets are the ones who have been teaching these words. They've been showing his servants what must soon take place. Verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And that I'll show you in months to come, is more than just the book of Revelation. So friends, when it comes to worshiping God and the ultimate task, God has given us the tools that we need to do it. And the tools are found in what it says in verse 9, keep the words of this book. You know, this may sound like it's too simple. It may sound like this is just something that I have to say because I'm a preacher. 
but standing on the authority of what God himself has said, standing on the authority of every generation that has come before us, standing on the authority of my own experience, but more importantly, standing on the authority of what this book says. This is our ultimate task. And every week that you come to Ascend Church is an opportunity for you to grow in studying and understanding and applying God's word. It's an opportunity to have modeled for you tools that you need to interpret God's word. This is not a place where you come and listen to an expert every week who's the only one who can understand and teach this book. This isn't a place where a select few are the only ones because of their education or their life experience that can understand this book. This is a place that models to you and equips you what you are not only tasked with doing, but what you are privileged in doing so that you can weekly and daily be reminded of who God is and overflow in your heart a worship of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We've studied four gardens Four gardens that have provided lenses through which we have seen the story of redemption. We have seen the configuration of the elements in the Garden of Eden. God laid out through his creation everything that a human being needs to be satisfied. And yet because of the sin of Adam and Eve, that configuration was corrupted. So the path to return there required a cost. It was the ultimate cost that was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane set that up. But then thankfully Jesus did not stay on the cross. He did not stay in the tomb. And that was the third garden, the garden of the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. And because of that, Jesus pronounced final victory over our ultimate enemy, death. And because of that, we are assured that we can walk through the arbor gate of the garden of the new Jerusalem. That is a place for us to long for. That is a place that should get us up in the morning. That is a place that should give us everything that we need so that no matter what happens on this earth, no matter what has happened in your past, your present, or you anticipate may take place in your future, there is still hope. There is still a glorious future reality. Oh, but friend, that is only reserved for those who have conquered because they've trusted in the conqueror, Jesus Christ. Have you? Have you ever come to a place in your life where you have owned the fact that you are a sinner rightly condemned to an eternity in hell? Have you ever owned the fact that you cannot save yourself? Someone else had to do the work for you, and that someone is Jesus Christ. And because of his life, his death, his resurrection, he has made a way for you, but you must receive it. Have you received the completed work of Christ by asking him to forgive your sins, placing your faith and trust in him and surrendering to him as Lord of your life? If not, I plead with you, do that today. If you have, friend, maybe today was an opportunity for you to be recalibrated, 
to see the glories of the purity of the garden of the New Jerusalem, to see the glories of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords whose very presence means that there will be no physical structure of a temple, that there is no need for a sun, moon, and stars. He is our light. He is the presence that ensures an eternity of abundant life. Maybe the contrast of that with maybe sin in your life or laziness in your life needs to be repented of, needs to be recalibrated. Would you take care of that right now? And then, friend, if you're as best as you know in a healthy place in your walk with Christ, then use this as an opportunity to anticipate the new Jerusalem. Use this as an opportunity to be grateful for the cost that was paid to ensure that we will join the saints of old and the saints of the future, worshiping forever the Lamb who was slain. Oh, friend, take this learning that we have all experienced this morning and invite the Holy Spirit to impact you so that the learning can transition into living all to the glory of Christ. Father, I thank you for these gardens and the opportunity to use them to follow your story of redemption from creation to the new Jerusalem. I thank you that the center of each of these gardens is Jesus Christ. May he have been on display in such a way that we are compelled to look upon him that when we do, we clearly see his majesties and that it is impossible for us to walk away unchanged. Work in our hearts and our minds so that we can fulfill our ultimate task of worshiping God. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.